Hush, little baby, don't say a word, because it's time to review Batman Hush. You bet your ass What's going on, friends? It's time to continue our Arkham Hardly Contain Myself series, and we're going to do so with a review of uh, Hush, the comic book, that is not the uh, animated movie that came out um, at some point last year, I think it was. Um, so Hush, Hush is one of my personal favorite comic book stories for Batman, and I think as a whole, it's one of my favorite comic books. I've read it um, several times over, and uh, there are several elements that I really love about that series, about that that saga. Um, first, let's get into um, the people who brought this thing to life. And I want to start doing this with any review of comic books, just because it's, I mean, it's it's right to pay pay homage and to credit the um, the people who who make this thing happen. So the writer is Jeff Loeb, which is you know one of the best Batman writers, um, in my opinion. Um, the penciler is the legend, Jim Lee. Jim Lee's artwork speaks a lot to me. I, I love his approach of highly detailed um, compositions for the bodies and the outfits of the heroes. Like He turns what would look in another artist's um, drawings like a leotard. Basically, he turns it into something with more depth and dimension and thickness. You know, he just brings a sort of realism, not like Alex Alex Ross style realism, but just this level of detail in his art that I I really, really appreciate. Definitely um, within my top three uh, comic book artists of all time. Um, The Anchor. So, of course, there's different uh, roles here, by the way. So not always is it, if, if you have a penciler, not always are you going to have that person in charge of color and in charge of inking. Um, so the writer writes, you know, the, the script for the comic book, basically, hands it over to the penciler, who then does all the drawings in his own style of artwork. He brings to life the scenes that the writer has penned. Um, then comes the inking job. So, you know, it's a job of actually tracing out, basically filling in with, with black India ink. I think that's still what they use. I'm not sure, but filling out with ink. Uh, well now it's probably all digital now that I think about it, but back then, um, actually inking all of the drawings, adding the shadows, adding dimension through the use of black ink. Then comes a letterer. Um, who puts in all the actual, you know, the actual dialogue and all the, you know, inner di- inner monologue boxes and uh, narrator boxes and with all the text, and then comes the colorist who brings it all finally to life by adding color to the entire thing. So this is a perfect example. This Hush comic book is a perfect example of the teamwork that is involved in bringing a comic book to life. In this case, the writer was Jeff Loeb. Penciler was Jim Lee. The inker was Scott Williams. The letterer was Richard Starkings. And the colorist, one of my favorite colorists, is Alex Sinclair. Um, I, I love the boldness. He really plays off very, very well with the uh, with the established colors for the heroes 
uh, suits. And, you know, since the suits are so iconic for a lot of these characters, getting the colors right, like for Superman, getting the red and the blue right, for Batman, getting the, you know, tones of black and gray and yellow and all that kind of stuff right, it just uh, brings the characters to life in a really cool way. So anyway, that was the five-person team that brought the Hush comic book together. Um, this spanned several issues. It... um it was created. When did this thing come out? Let's see. Um, this was released back in twenty, in two thousand two, actually. Um, that's when this comic book started. It concluded in September of two thousand three, though, and um, the uh, it spans a pretty long amount of issues. It's uh, let's see. It took place during the run of Batman issues number 608 to 619. So you've got 11, 11 issues that form this entire story. Um, the One of the things that I love most about this particular comic book is the writing. Jeff Loeb really does a phenomenal job in creating not only very witty, very interesting dialogue between the characters... But particularly with a character like Batman, he really gets us into the head, into the psychology of Batman Bruce Wayne. And the reputation that we see Batman having for being very morose and very quiet and stuff like that, he kind of takes that and turns it on its head by taking us inside the inner monologue, the inner dialogue uh, or monologue rather that Batman is having at every single scene of the story. And so Batman is a character who works alone a great deal. He's somebody who is just solitary. He's like that. Um, and that brings about the opportunity to get to know so many cool details about him because he's reacting to and uh, monologuing in his head to everything that's happening, kind of like speaking to us, right. As the audience almost, and so we, we start little by little discovering what makes Batman a brilliant crime fighter. And the fact that this guy is so incredibly intelligent and his intelligence is what makes up for the fact that he is not super powered like these other big heroes, right? Like these other super superhuman heroes, Superman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Flash and Lantern and all that. He makes up for it with intelligence and with dexterity and skills and training and knowledge of many, many different areas that serve him well for crime fighting. And you see that throughout the entire comic book. So many examples that I can go to. I'm going to go into a couple of them um, as I go through a little recap of the story. So basically, the entire story starts off with Batman rescuing a kidnapped kid from Killer Croc. Um, when he takes down Croc, Catwoman steals the ransom money that they were going to give Croc uh, to let the kid go. By the way, when he goes in, when Batman goes in to try to find where the child is, you see this really cool way of Batman analyzing criminals like thugs who were there working with Croc. Um, and he just goes through and kind of like analyzes all their weaknesses in the middle of a fight. Very, very cool scene. Again, just giving us a glimpse into Batman's thinking and how he approaches a fight. Um, and you see how it escalates uh, from fighting just regular thugs to finding to, to fighting the more superpowered villains. 
So Catwoman steals the ransom money, and uh, once the kid is secured, Batman goes and starts chasing Catwoman on the rooftops, you know, with his grappling hook, his grappling gun. And as he's grappling around, one of the grappling guns is cut by a batarang, and he falls, completely catches him off guard. He falls into, you know, concrete, into an, in, in an alley, I believe, and his skull is fractured. Um, he's essentially eventually rescued by Huntress, and she delivers him to Alfred, and Alfred um, calls his friend Thomas Elliot, who is a famous surgeon. In this case, he's uh, of, among many of his talents. He's a brain surgeon. And so um, he performs the surgery on Bruce Wayne, on his friend Bruce Wayne, and essentially saves his life. Um, now, we're introduced to Tommy Elliot at this point via flashbacks. And we start getting a really cool glimpse at the dynamic between Thomas Elliot and Bruce Wayne, both of whom belong to very wealthy families in Gotham. Um, they grew up together. They would go hang out in Gotham City together and they would like see heroes like the old Green Lantern flying around and stuff like that. So there's really cool glimpse into uh, Bruce Wayne's childhood. Um, we also see them playing like this uh, strategy board game together. And so we're little by little introduced to his to this friend who actually had a lot of meaning for him to for Bruce when they were kids, especially. Uh, so Batman is eventually he starts recovering. He starts getting up and going out and about before he actually gets a full recovery. But, you know, he's Batman. Uh, so he goes out and he starts investigating and learns that Poison Ivy had used Catwoman. She controlled Catwoman with her whole, you know, her toxins uh, so that she would go and steal the ransom money. Uh, Batman and Catwoman team up and they track down Poison Ivy in Metropolis, which is, of course, the city of Clark Kent and Lois Lane and Superman. Um, uh, they get there and they learn that Ivy has taken control of Superman using her toxin, which is not easy. He wouldn't succumb to that uh, because of his superpowers. And so she commands him, Superman, to kill Batman. So a really interesting battle ensues, right? Of course, Superman is, you know, infinitely more powerful than Batman, stronger than Batman. He could, you know, quite literally snap his neck in, in, a, in a matter of seconds if he wanted to, because he has super speed on top of everything else. Batman is essentially starting to stall and to distract him in various ways, using basically every freaking tool that he has in his utility belt. Um, all sorts of explosions and electric shocks and smoke screens and a whole bunch of stuff just to stall him, to kind of slow him down a little bit. Batman is very much aware that he cannot defeat Superman, right? Which is part of the brilliance here, that we see him basically carrying out this on-the-spot plan, seemingly. But you actually start telling very soon that he is not actually unprepared for this. He has gone through this scenario in his head multiple times. He knows how to distract them, and he knows exactly what his next step would be. And in this case, he uses Lois Lane. Catwoman goes and grabs Lois Lane, takes her to the very top of the uh, the Daily Planet building, Um and during this entire thing, while all this is happening, Batman is stalling Superman. Eventually, he puts on a ring, and it's a ring, a kryptonite ring. And he clobbers Superman with it, actually hurting him, kind of knocking him knocking, uh, knocking him uh, senseless for a little bit. And um, he later explains to Catwoman that 
the ring was actually given to him by Superman because Superman knew that the only person he could entrust with a weapon that would be used just in case Superman was ever, you know, lost control of himself or turned evil or, you know, uh, was being controlled as he, like he was in this case, there was only one person that he could trust to do the right thing with that piece of kryptonite with that ring. And so he gave it to Bruce Wayne. Another thing that I really love about this comic, Superman is, uh, I believe, yeah, he's the only hero that is uh, introduced, that is featured, aside from Batman's typical Bat family. And I love that they utilized this character to just, or this opportunity to show us a little bit of, of the relationship between Clark Kent and Bruce Wayne, Batman and Superman, because they're they're not the two top heads of justice league for no reason. You know, they, they're the yin and the yang of, of the justice league. They balance each other out. They represent two very different uh, parts of the, the thinking of the justice league. And so they drop little hints throughout the entire story. When Superman is involved of that relationship and why it's so valuable. Uh, Again, Jeff Loeb, awesome storyteller. Um, so uh, Catwoman eventually throws um, Poison Ivy from the top of the Daily Planet building. Batman basically gambled <laughs> with Lois Lane's life. He knew that that Superman would be strong enough to overpower the toxin, Poison, Poison Ivy's toxin, and snap out of it so that he could go and save Lois. Because Lois, he, Batman knows Lois is the one that tugs the tightest at Superman's heartstrings. He knew that that would be the perfect antidote to snap him out of it. And sure enough, he was right. Superman snaps out of it, breaks Ivy's spell, goes and saves Lois. And uh, then Superman and Batman actually go and capture uh, Poison Ivy. Um, Later on, uh, Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle, Catwoman, are attending the opera. And uh, Thomas Elliot is also there with a date. And so the opera is suddenly interrupted by Harley Quinn who tries to rob everybody in the movie theater or in the uh, opera theater, rather, Um, you know, all kinds of chaos ensues. Uh, Batman tries to stop uh, Harley Quinn, eventually knocking her out. I think Uh, in the entire chaos, we see that Dr. Elliot gets shot and seemingly dies. And then Batman turns and it seems like it was the Joker who had done this. The Joker sitting and standing in an alley there is a gun in his hand, and Joker's just laughing his butt off. Batman starts beating the Joker, and he decides, and again, we find this out through the inner monologue and a combination of that and what he's actually telling him verbally. He's he's about ready to kill the Joker, which, you know, that's his one thing, right? Batman's one rule, he will not kill, no matter how twisted these criminals are. But to him, Joker just took the life of a childhood friend, somebody that he cared deeply about, And that was the last straw, basically. What stops him is James Gordon, former commissioner. At this point, he's the former commissioner who comes in and he shoots Batman uh, just to wound him superficially. But he shoots him to snap him out of it. And he convinces him that he should not do this, that he should stick to his rule, that he should not lower himself to that to that level. And Batman stops uh, beating Joker at that point. Um, Eventually. Uh, Dick Grayson returns to Gotham and Batman starts talking to him about all the suspicions that 
there is some kind of mastermind who is causing all these villains. So, so far we got Killer Croc, Catwoman, Ivy, um, uh, Joker, Harley Quinn, who are acting out of character. They're doing things that they normally don't understand. Now, this is a really important point, and it's kind of a recurring theme throughout the entire um, the entire saga of Hush. And it's how well Batman knows these villains. He knows them psychologically well enough that he understands when they're acting out of character, when they're committing crimes that don't fit the profile that he's developed in his mind for them. And so it's almost like a fail-safe. It's almost like a like a like a like an alarm system for him because he has such clarity on what he expects from each one of these supervillains that he knows if something is if somebody's going off script, basically. He knows that something else is up. There's an other element that has thrown itself into the mix of their psychology, of their actions. And he knows to look for what that mystery element is. And that's essentially what Jeff Loeb has him doing here uh, throughout this entire comic series. It's him playing detective to figure out what is this mystery piece? Who is it that's pulling the strings with all these uh, moving pieces of Batman's rogues gallery, which by the way, the fact that Jeff Loeb decided to use the villains, pretty much the entire slew, at least at this point, right in the early two thousands, the entire slew of Batman's most well-known villains are making an appearance in this, in the storyline. And it's brilliant how each of them is used. And some of them specifically to more degrees than, than the rest. And it all plays around with the psychology and the understanding that Batman has of these villains. So it's a really cool story. It's one of the things that makes this Hush story stand out so much that we get to see every villain be playing a role. And it's very few comics where we see all these villains intertwining into the story without it seeming like a mess. And this comic book series does a really good job of keeping it all making sense and kind of flowing in a coherent way. Um, let's keep on going with the story. So uh, <clears throat> Dick Grayson returns. Batman tells him about his suspicions. Uh, a man, uh, we start noticing that after every crime scene within this storyline, a man with band with an entire bandaged head shows up kind of ominously observing from the shadows all the events of what's happening. So we start seeing this character whom we later on start identifying as Hush. We start seeing this character just uh, creeping in on every crime scene that Batman is trying to, is trying to prevent. Uh, eventually uh, Batman learns through the help with the help of Nightwing that Ra's al Ghul is involved in this grand plot somehow. And so he goes and tries to figure it out. What he ends up having to do to get Ra's al Ghul's attention is to kidnap his daughter, Talia al Ghul. Um, he leaves her with Catwoman, goes and tells Ra's that he needs to get information from him, and in return, he'll let he'll uh, let her loose. So Ra's al Ghul finally tells him that he himself is trying to kind of like discover or, or, or investigate something that happened, and it's that somebody used one of his Lazarus pits, which are these pits that he, Ra's al Ghul, submerges himself into to basically renew his youth and keep himself strong and vital, right? 
Um, so he tells Batman that somebody used one of the Lazarus spits and he, and he doesn't know who. Uh, Batman eventually goes back to Catwoman, who was supposed to be holding uh, Talia al Ghul. She ends up getting rescued by uh, uh, by another character. Um, and Catwoman is now being attacked by Huntress, right? Huntress is part of Batman's allies, but she's uh, delusional. And she's trying to attack Catwoman, and she's acting very out of character. Batman immediately starts realizing that she's acting that way because she's under the control of of Scarecrow's fear toxin. Out of nowhere, Scarecrow jumps in in Huntress's motorcycle, starts attacking Batman. While the fight is ensuing, two things are happening. Number one, Batman is little by little starting to, in his mind, piece together um, or, or confirm some of his theories. Number two, Scarecrow is singing a song the entire time, and it's that hush little baby, don't you cry, uh, lullaby, nursery rhyme from uh you know from culture with something that we're all familiar with and of course it has it keeps on repeating the word hush in in the lyrics and so the entire time in his mind batman is piecing together that he understands now that if scarecrow is involved in this plot his theory about these villains acting out of character and there being a mastermind who is controlling their moves and their operations was correct. He eventually overpowers uh, Scarecrow. Uh, really cool little moment here. When Scarecrow starts blasting him with his fear toxin, <laughs> he sees that Batman isn't reacting. Um, I forget where I read this. Uh, maybe it was in one of the Arkham comics or, or I mean one of the Arkham video games or, or in another comic, but there's a, there's a moment where Batman uh, reveals that he figured out a way, like some kind of failsafe in, the, failsafe in his brain, to keep himself balanced uh, when when hit with the Scarecrow toxin. To the point that he would actually, to try to train himself, he would dose himself with Scarecrow's toxin just to teach himself the discipline of how to overcome the effects. So. Batman does his homework <laughs> and Scarecrow's completely baffled by the fact that his, that his fear toxin isn't, isn't taking effect on Batman. Um, in the meantime, Batman uh, starts telling him, I don't want to talk to, um, to Scarecrow. I want to talk to Jonathan Crane, Dr. Jonathan Crane. And Batman tells him, I knew that you would be involved in this because you provided for this mastermind, for whoever's pulling the strings, you provided the psychological profiles. As a clinical, as a criminal psychologist, you would be able to know what these, what the rest of the criminals involved in this whole plot would want, what they would need, and what they would react to. And you gave that intel to the to the puppeteer, basically, to know what strings to pull to be able to get these criminals to do his bidding, and. Um, eventually in that same graveyard, Batman sees that the, um, the, the graveyard, which he was aware of already that, that the graveyard that, uh, Scarecrow attacked, um, attacked him in was actually the graveyard where Jason Todd was buried. Jason Todd is a second Robin, right? The first Robin is Dick Grace and then comes Jason Todd. Jason Todd was killed by the Joker and Batman secretly buried him in that uh, in that graveyard. So he realizes that somebody knew very intimate details about him, about Robin, about what had happened, and he sees a grave empty. 
So now we have this story, this plot starting to build where Batman is wondering where the heck is Jason Todd's body. Um, eventually, uh, Batman is interrupted as he's interrogating Scarecrow. Batman is interrupted by the man in the bandages and the trench coat holding a captured Robin, Tim Drake, which is the third Robin. He's holding him hostage and he shows up and he's threatening Batman. And a dialogue starts where eventually it concludes with the, with the Hush character saying, haven't you figured it out yet? Your past has come to haunt you or something like that. He takes off the bandages and it's the face of an older Jason Todd. So, and that comic, that particular comic book ends with that. And the next entire comic, the next entire issue is a battle between Batman and between this more adult Jason Todd. And so Batman is contemplating the idea. Could it be that Jason Todd was revived using the Lazarus pit and that he is orchestrating that he's masterminding all this as a revenge plot for having, for Batman having let him die. Very interesting uh, very interesting turn of events, something that you weren't really expecting when you're reading the comic. He looks really cool, by the way. So he re it's revealed that underneath the trench coat, he's wearing this really cool Robin-like suit. It even has the R for, uh, for Robin, but looking a lot more tactical. Obviously, he's looking a lot more grown up. He looks the height of Batman, basically, and the same kind of body build as Batman. He also has the same... Um, uh, the same mask that Robins wear normally, um, but it, it's a little bit cooler and it's a, obviously larger because he has a larger face. He has a little bit of gray in his hair. And so throughout the battle between Batman and him, Batman starts realizing this is not Jason Todd. And um, he starts beating, beating him down eventually. And it's revealed that it's actually Clayface who is pretending to be an older Jason Todd. So that fight ends right there. Batman um, heads back to the to the to the Batcave eventually, and he realizes that there is some kind of device implanted into his computer in the Batcave, and so he goes and he tries to hit up a trusted um, a trusted ally, somebody that that he considers a friend whom he went to in the past in previous uh, comic book issues. Um, it is, uh, this guy called Harold. And so he goes and he talks to Harold and Harold recognizes. Harold admits to him. Yes. Someone came to me and they offered to heal me through surgery, um, in exchange for me to put that in, in the back cave. And right before he's about to reveal who it is, he gets shot. Batman turns around and it's hush who just shot this guy. Um, then, uh, a fight ensues. And um, it, here's, here's where we find out that this Hush character is actually uh, Thomas Elliot. And here's what I really love about it. That, of course, up to this point, we don't know. We assume that Thomas Elliot is dead. But all throughout the entire storyline, we keep seeing these flashbacks of Batman and Tommy while, while they were kids. Of Bruce Wayne and Thomas while they were kids. And they keep playing this board game, this role-playing kind of strategy board game. And so it's a really, really cool parallel here that in the flashback, these two kids are playing what is essentially a, you know, bigger scale chess match. 
And in the present, the two masterminds, Batman as mastermind crime solver, Thomas Elliot as a mastermind criminal who's pulling the strings for all these, uh, for all these other criminals, presumably, um, they're playing the same kind of strategy match. It's such a cool reveal. Like the way that it all kind of comes together in combination with the flashbacks. Again, brilliant storytelling. By the way, the style of drawing used for the flashbacks, it's some, it looks something like watercolors. I think they may have used watercolors. I'm not even sure if that was Jim Lee. Um, but it's a beautiful different style. And then the co- the uh, Alex Sinclair used uh, tones of red and white for the flashbacks. And so he managed, they managed to, to, to make those flashbacks look so freaking cool. They really look like old timey. They look like they belong in the past. They look like a hazy memory in your brain. And I, I, I can't even describe enough how, how cool that is. So anyway, it all kind of comes together. Oh man, Thomas Elliot is the mastermind behind this whole thing. And uh, Batman doesn't know it exactly yet because the bandages are still on his face. Um, suddenly he is shot, Hush is shot by a reborn, like a restored Harvey Dent, Harvey Dent having been Two-Face and, uh, Hush, the Hush's body falls into the water. Batman then goes back and says, Harvey, how are you healed? And he says, surgery by a very expensive surgeon, um, in Philadelphia, his name is Thomas Elliot. You were just fighting him. At this point, uh, Batman goes back to the Batcave and he starts starting to piece it all together. Now that, now that he knows that it was Thomas Elliot behind the Hush mask, um, he actually brings in Superman. So Superman's standing there with him in the Batcave and Batman is basically running his ideas off of him. This is another one of those moments where you see Jeff Loeb diving a little bit more into the the interesting dynamic between Batman and Superman. Um, Batman, in an inner monologue, he says, I have brought Clark into this. In an odd way, he can sometimes be less emotionally involved than I can. And you see him, Batman, basically running through the entire chronology of events. He says that he had been to Philadelphia, which is where Thomas Elliot was a uh, practicing doctor. Um, uh, he says that um, the he should have been seeing, he should have been realizing um, that it was somebody that close to him, somebody that he that knew him that well and trusted him that much. Um, Superman then makes a comment. He says, Bruce, sometimes detective work is like finding your eyeglasses. They're always in the last place you look because after that, you found them. So really interesting, right? World's greatest detective Batman is, but... Superman provides an valuable enough insight to him because he comes at it from such a different perspective. And then he goes, he starts going, um, Batman does through the entire, uh, set of events. He says that, um, uh, he got Harold, his, uh, tech technology buddy involved into it because he promised that he would, you know, uh, do plastic surgery on him because he had some deformities or something, some kind of, um, something wrong with him that he wanted to fix. Same thing with Harvey Dent, right? He got him to be involved in the plot via a promise of plastic surgery and restoring his entire appearance from what he looks like as Two-Face to going back to looking like Harvey Dent. Um, which, by the way, when Harvey Dent comes into the picture, Hush tells him, Harvey, you weren't supposed to be here at this point. 
uh, we had an agreement. And then Harvey says, well, you know, you know what lawyers said about agreements are meant to be broken or something like that. And so he um, he he shoots him. That's when he gets involved and he stops him from killing Batman. Um, so it's a very interesting thing how he had more roles for people to play, but Harvey kind of broke the, the pattern. Um, so basically, uh, Batman continues on saying he even got Huntress uh, to, to get involved in the thing. He says that he, the way that Thomas Elliot played him, played Batman, was by having that device installed into the Batcave. And he says subliminals. Every time I use a computer, Harold's hidden relay would randomly flash Tommy Elliot's image. When I fell, when I needed a surgeon, I only thought of Dr. Thomas Elliot. That's why when he was like almost half passed out, he told Alfred after falling in and, and causing the, the, the cranium injury, he told Alfred, get Dr. Thomas Elliot. And that's why Alfred called him. Um, the other thing, as he was uh, fighting Hush, the basic plot is revealed. He basically says that uh, this is Thomas Elliot telling Bruce Wayne that the 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 beef that he had with him stems all the way back to their childhood and early adult and and uh, preteen age. He says that he Thomas Elliot had actually sabotaged his parents' car. Remember, his parents were also rich, like like Bruce Wayne's were, and he sabotaged their car. They were both supposed to die in the car accident that night. And they did have the car accident, but instead of dying, his mom survived. And in comes Thomas Wayne, who was Bruce's dad and was a, a doctor, and he saved his mom's life. So he kept him from getting his early inheritance and having his way, and he held that against the Waynes forever. And since uh, Martha and Thomas Wayne were murdered, he that debt kind of transferred over to Bruce Wayne. So very interesting that he reveals that it's a very personal thing for him, why he's, uh, why he's doing all that. Um, uh, he also, um, he also has Superman while he's in the Batcave, uh, x-ray him basically and check his cranium to make sure that he didn't leave anything like implanted, uh, Thomas Elliot when he did, uh, brain surgery on him. And so uh, he basically uh, confirmed that his brain was fine, that he didn't sabotage his brain in any way. Um, then comes the closing events of the comic, which are basically Batman speaking to somebody in kind of like a padded room in what is assumed to be Arkham Asylum. And it's a very interesting dialogue. Basically, Batman is starting to unravel to this to, to reveal to this person how he figured everything out. And it's a really interesting conversation. Um, he basically starts telling him uh, how he figured out the entire sequence of events. And he says, presumably it all began with Killer Croc kidnapping the boy. You didn't need the ransom, did you? Elliot's wealth financed all of it. Essentially, this person answers, essentially, but you can never really have enough money, right? You'd know better than anyone. Then he says, where did you get the kryptonite for Ivy's lipstick? So this is how uh, Poison Ivy was able to infect uh, Superman with her um, with her toxin. Uh, he asked, and then the person uh, asked him right back, well, where did you get that ring, his kryptonite ring that he hit uh, Superman with? 
So then he continues on saying that uh, the person now speaking, this person that Batman is speaking to, which again is not being revealed, right? We're not seeing the person. We're only seeing Batman talking and we're seeing the person's speech bubbles, but not the person yet. Um, And then the person says, you have to remember that we're not dealing with a brain trust here. Croc never quite understood that we infected him with a virus. He was desperate for a cure and we'd have provided it during surgery. The antidote isn't hard to figure out. I imagine wherever the feds have him, he's been restored. Then Batman says, Scarecrow did the evaluations. And he says, every the person answers, everybody wants something. So Batman asks, Poison Ivy? He, he answers, money, and she's got a thing about Catwoman. Then he asks, Harley Quinn? The person answers, love, getting to work with the Joker. Then Batman asks, the Joker? He couldn't have been easy. And then the person responds, at first when he heard that Jason Todd gag, he couldn't resist it. Um, and then he asked about Clayface and he said money, another moron. And, uh, he basically reveals that he discovered, um, that it was him who did all this, the person that he's speaking to. And he says Riddler. Now we go to the next panel and Riddler sitting there, feet up on a table, looking all mischievous. Basically it wasn't Thomas Elliot who pulled the strings alone. It was a partnership between the Riddler and Thomas Elliot that got that pulled all this together. So the brilliance of Edward Nigma of the Riddler is what brought together the entire puppetry of this plan, utilizing all the different villains to create essentially this master riddle for Batman to solve. And the way that and the, the shocker comes when he wreck it when he reveals to Batman that he actually discovered his secret identity. The Riddler did. He asks how he was able to solve that riddle, Batman asks. And um, he says, yes, the Lazarus spit gives you a unique kind of clarity. So the effects of the Lazarus spit, remember, we're dealing with Edward, Edward Nigma here, right? Edward Nigma is perhaps one of the smartest villains in Batman's rogues gallery. I mean, his entire dynamic with Batman is about outsmarting the world's greatest detective. This is played up really well in the Arkham video games. Throughout the entire thing, as uh, Joshua and I described in, in a previous episode, throughout the entire game, there are a ton of puzzles and riddles and, cre- and, and challenges that you have to solve if you want to solve the Riddler's, if you want to get the main trophy for solving the Riddler's stuff, right? His enigmas or whatever. Um, and they play this up a lot, right? There's certain ones, certain challenges that the Riddler has um, set up throughout Gotham City that when you solve it or while you're in the middle of solving it, the Riddler is speaking to Batman either through a pre-recorded thing or live on screens or through audio or whatever in, in whatever location it is that he set up this entire puzzle thing. And as you're solving it, the Riddler is revealing his psychology. He's revealing his, his, his mindset. It's all a game to him between him and Batman. It's a constant chess match between him and Batman. The fact that we're going to have the Riddler um, being, being introduced ever since Jim Carrey played him. But Jim Carrey played him more, he felt like more of a Joker character than the Riddler. Now we're going to get the Riddler introduced... Um, in the Batman, in the new movie, I can only hope that they take the Riddler to this scale, to this level, for the first time in the movies. Because, again, 
the Riddler and Batman, the dynamics should be a constant ongoing chess match, constantly trying to outwit each other, constantly trying to uh, overpower the other person through intellect. And, um, and so Batman uses this psychology against them when he realizes that he knows a secret identity. And he basically tells him, he, he starts off with a riddle. As soon as he calls him Bruce, as soon as Riddler calls him Bruce, he says, Batman responds with, what time is it when an elephant sits on a fence? <laughs> and it catches Riddler completely off guard. And he's like, wait, what? And he says, what time is it when an elephant sits on a fence? And then Riddler says, time to get a new fence. Everyone knows that one. It's worthless. And Batman says, that's why I have nothing to fear from you. You had to tell Elliot, but no one else, speaking about the knowledge of his secret identity, not even Clayface when he was playing Robin. I know you, Edward Nigma. maybe better than you know yourself. Riddles are your compulsion, your addiction, and the riddle that everyone knows the answer to is worthless. And you got to admire the artwork here, okay? First of all, the writing is awesome, but the, the artwork, the next three panels are basically the Riddler going through these different stages of puzzling looks <laughs> until he finally just shuts up and he says uh and he tells him plus in case you do ever decide to trade on my identity keep in mind razal ghoul is still looking for who used his spit question how would you fare against the entire league of assassins and then he's just left there with a defeated look so it all ends up with Batman using the psychology of the criminal against him, understanding the criminal. Mind you, he was fighting two criminals here, right? He was fighting Hush and he was fighting Riddler. He thwarted Hush's plan, which was much more straightforward, but Riddler, he had the masterminding part of this thing covered and Batman outsmarted him and he used his own psychosis against him and his own mental issues against him. He basically trapped him in his own mind to not be able to take a step when it came to uh, his secret identity in two ways. If you reveal yourself as the mastermind of this whole thing, Ra's al Ghul is going to know that it was you who used the last respite. He's going to come after you with the entire League of Assassins. That's number one. Number two, the whole riddle thing. You don't want to go and tell a riddle that everyone knows the answer to. You just you want to keep this as a riddle. So cool way to end it. Basically, this comic book to me is one of the coolest Batman stories. Um, I did watch the animated version of it. Um, I enjoyed it, but I, you know, I don't think they can cram all this into uh, into a cartoon movie. However, I would love to see this at some point played out. Maybe not in the silver screen. Maybe not on the big screen. It, this may be too too involved for the big screen. It's a lot of characters, right? You've got Batman's entire Bat family. You've got Batman's entire Rogue of uh, Rogue of Villain, uh, 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 Rogues Gallery making an appearance. That's a lot of characters. That'd be a lot of actors. That'd be a lot of uh, a lot of complexity built into uh, a movie. Maybe it would be too long of a movie. Who knows? But I think that in in a format of television, if, if a Batman TV series or streaming series is ever made, which for God's sake, I hope the DC does this at some point, you'd be able to tell Batman stories at a more calm pace. 
you know, 12, 12 episode seasons or something like that. You could have an entire season play out where it's just this story, for instance, told calmly throughout different episodes. And I mean, it's not like we don't have a premise for it. We have, you know, evidence uh, such as the Batman animated series uh, back in the day. You could absolutely bring a Batman serialized streaming thing to life and it would be incredibly successful. I honestly don't know why DC has held back for so long. Maybe it's because they were betting all their, putting all their eggs on the DCEU Justice League basket. That basket obviously fell. All the eggs cracked. It's time to come up with a new plan. So I can only hope that there is some kind of plan to tell awesome Batman stories on the small screen. I think that people would really dig it. And a storyline like this one, like Hush, could make for an incredible season of Batman stories um, for that kind of format. Anyway, those are my thoughts on Batman Hush. If you haven't read the comic, I highly, highly recommend it. Yes, you may have already seen the story play out in the cartoon movie, but guys, Jim Lee's artwork, Jeff Loeb's writing, you guys have to check this out if you're into comic books. It's definitely worth your time. Thank you guys for listening. If you have any comments or opinions, you can write us at G101 at at G101podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media, um, on Twitter and Instagram at G101podcast. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss the next reviews, so you don't mix the next uh, pieces of news coming out from the geeky world. We're always going to be putting out content for everything that's going on that is geeky in nature. And please uh, give us a review if you do like this podcast. We would love to uh, get the shout out. Um, Give us a five-star rating. It'll help us put the podcast on the map. We will catch you guys in the next episode. Thanks for listening, guys.